Um, as for my story uh, with Jesus, I'm glad to be able to present it. Um, initially, I had a lot of things to share, but I thank my better half for keeping me in check and on target. So happy birthday, Stacy! Thank you for slimming things down. She's, she's at home right now with our sick uh, baby. So, um, But as for my story, uh, it's not super dramatic. It's not super eye-opening. But there are moments within it that I think are universal. And I hope that they resonate with you in your journey. And usually when I preach, I usually use a lot of songs and videos, and I'm gonna do the same here. I can't help it. I know that sometimes people play music, and you're like, I can't connect with this. Why are you doing this? But I have to. It's like this is a soundtrack to my life, and I kinda need to play some of these songs to uh, have you connect with my faith journey at that time. So if you're feeling the song, just roll with it. If you're not feeling the song, just know that it will end soon. Okay. So. Uh, the music that all plays a bigger role in my life, especially when why Jesus, why Jesus becomes, why Jesus? And so uh, I think all the preceding why Jesus stories uh, were presented chronologically, so I'll kind of do the same. Uh, here's the first date in my faith journey, 1521. Yes, I'm old, but I'm not this old. 1521 is the date that explorer Ferdinand Magellan landed in the Philippines in Southeast Asia, bringing Spanish culture, Spanish appropriation of resources, and Spanish religion to the islands. By the way, Magellan is credited as the first person to circumnavigate the world. That's not true. A Filipino chieftain named Lapu-Lapu killed Magellan, and his crew completed the journey back to Spain in his honors. And Filipinos love to point this out. Take that, colonizers! So, uh, there's a part in Paul's letter to the Philippians where Paul lays out his bona fides as a Hebrew of Hebrews. I think that Danielle might have talked about this last week. Uh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, and so on. And as to the law, a Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under law, blameless. So, if anyone were to have confidence in their own standing, Paul would be at the front of the line. That's me. I am a Catholic among Catholics, born into families that have been Catholic for generations, named after St. Mark the Evangelist, baptized into the faith on my sister's second birthday, two parties in one, let's save some money, was taught the Lord's Prayer and Hail Mary as soon as I could speak, received five of the second sacraments of Catholicism, can perform the rosary all five decades in each prayer from memory, 12 years of Catholic education with almost daily instruction and doctrine, an altar boy for five years, I knew where everything in the local church was kept, including the incense. When people asked me where I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, priest. My grade school classmates looked out for me, knowing that I wanted to become a priest, keeping me holy and out of trouble. I broke up fights. I counseled people. I attended mass faithfully for decades. I was a member of the Knights of Columbus. I took Latin for five years in preparation for seminary. I have the Jesuit motto for the greater glory of God tattooed on my arm. I take pride in being Catholic. Oh, I know there are huge, massive flaws of the Catholic Church, and many of them still haven't been addressed but I love being Catholic. It's part of my family, part of my community, part of who I am. Awesome. So why Jesus? One reason is it's in my blood. Following Jesus was never not an option for me. Even if I were an atheist or a Buddhist-leaning agnostic, which I actually feel like I am sometimes, I'd still be following Jesus. But that's probably not the question in your mind right now. You're probably wondering, if he's so proud of being Catholic, why is he sitting here speaking to a non-denominational congregation? <laughs> Why is he a pastor at a Protestant church? Good question. And one I hope to answer to your satisfaction by the end of this message. And there's so much more to say about Catholicism, but for the sake of time, it'll have to wait. 
What I'm about to share is not the typical Catholic experience, and despite my initial boastfulness, I know I don't know everything. But if you have any questions, please come and talk to me about these things. Here was my problem within Catholicism, and it's not necessarily unique to me. I was effectively a deist. At my Jesuit high school, I was introduced to the watchmaker analogy. God created the universe in all its perfections and imperfections, and he didn't interact with it other than to correct it and to adjust it as needed. God was hands-off unless he chose to help, and that fit perfectly with my understanding of God. I don't need God's help. God, go help other people. Catholics also embrace works as a necessary expression of faith. Within Filipino Catholicism, specifically, there is a works-based fatalism. It's called bahalana. In short, it means I've done everything that God's asked of me, and whatever God chooses to do now is all up to him. At its best, bahalana is complete trust in God. At its worst, it's absolving yourself from doing, not doing enough. But bahalana really matches well with deism, so I loved it. My theme song during these years, my, my high school years, was uh, the song that was sang at my Jewish, uh, Jewish, Jesuit high school at every chapel and every school mass. And this is it. Note that there's not really much there about personal relationship with Jesus. It's all about service. So I was on my way to the priesthood, but there were some things that happened that I really didn't expect. Uh, religion classes at, in high school. I had learned the watchmaker analogy from the teacher to the left, that's um, Jim McGarry. But prior to him, I took a freshman religion class with Paul Hanley in the center. He actually bat, uh, died this past February. Mr. Hanley taught comparative religion. And when he taught about Judaism and Buddhism and Islam and Protestant Christianity, he did it with reverence, not derision. Moreover, Mr. Hanley had gone to seminary and realized that God wasn't calling him to the priesthood. He had gotten married and was raising two kids. And when he talked about Catholic doctrine, it was very personal, as though these were issues that he was wrestling with God over and he still wasn't sure God was right. My final religion class of high school was with Karen Arevalo to the right. That's my sister, born a year and a half before me, raised in the same exact way, baptized and confirmed in the one true faith. She went to a different Catholic high school and then went to college at USC. And upon her return home during spring break her sophomore year, she told my parents and me, all of you are going to burn in hell. Karen had become a born-again Christian. She began to debate my dad and me regularly, and as a Catholic defender of the faith, I took her up on it. But I noticed that my dad's theology wasn't always correct. And I saw the holes in my sister's newfound faith, too. She was interpreting the Bible in ways that were historically inaccurate or without context. And she set about trying to convert me, saying that a prophet at her church had told her that I would one day become a Protestant pastor. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
As for my mom's response to my sister's conversion, my mom felt she was abandoning the family and God. So my mom chose to abandon her. For the next three years, they barely spoke a word to each other. By my junior year in high school, I realized I wasn't going to be a Catholic priest, and I stopped considering seminary. So when I graduated, I went to a secular school, UC Davis, and practiced and embraced my Filipino-ness. I still intended Mass, but the prayers for me remained, God, please help everyone else. Me? Don't bother. I'm good. My theme song for these years was by the hip-hop group Outkast. It's all about reliance on God to a point. So here's the the noted theologian CeeLo Green to share an excerpt. So that first part, all about reliance on God. That second part, not reliance on God. It's all on you, bruh. That is deism satisfied for me. Well, for the first time in my life, I was outside this Catholic bubble I had grown up in, in Daly City. And I started interacting with Protestants from time to time. And they were weirdos at minimum, (laughs) and cruel and unloving at their max. The weirdos included the guy who would walk into 200-person lecture halls, interrupt the professor mid-lecture, and share his testimony to the goodness of God, while the professor was going, what are you doing? And there was also the girl who would ask anyone and everyone if Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior. That person is actually a good friend of my, my wife now, so you know, God works in mysterious ways. Uh, the cruel and unloving, they included the protesters who would frequently, frequently walk across the quad, holding signs that read, God hates gays, repent before it's too late. They included the high school friends of my college roommate. He had grown up loved and deeply invested in a Presbyterian church in Berkeley. But after he came out as gay his senior year, the church turned against him, hoping he would repent. Instead, he chose to abandon Jesus. Sure, Catholics didn't have everything right, but in my mind, Protestants were either misguided in their zeal or plain wrong about everything. Still, I wasn't completely closed off. I took a religious religion studies class about Protestantism to defend against my sister's ongoing attempts to convert me. And I rolled my eyes at all the students that were there trying to prove their devoutness to one another. But why Jesus at this point in my life? Honestly, it was to serve as a counterpoint to how others wrongly were following him. I felt like I would carry the banner. So after graduating, I joined a startup, and I ended up arguing with a Protestant coworker on a daily basis. I'm not kidding, hours arguing about faith on a daily basis. And of course, I ended up dating her. <laughs> she told me, if we're going to be together, you better learn about my church. So I started attending her church, and then a second Protestant church, and then a third, and then a fourth. And then I was going on missions trips and joining Bible studies. I felt like I was cheating on my Catholic family. But I wasn't cheating on God. I felt like God wanted me to go through these things, to figure some things out. And there was a lot to figure out. 
My girlfriend and I were not on the same page about anything. We fought constantly. One moment, we were getting close to getting engaged. The next moment, we were breaking up. And my mom's health deteriorated. She lost her eyesight. She retired from nursing, and she grew depressed. And my encouragements to suck it up made things worse. I thought her death was just around the corner. At work, I was burning the candle at both ends, in part to avoid dealing with my girlfriend and my mom. So one night, weeknight, I was sitting in my office at 9 p.m., the only person in the building, and something just snapped. I couldn't physically move. I sat there at my desk for an hour, not moving, freaking out. My sister and her soon-to-be husband came, helped me into their car, took me home into my childhood bedroom, and closed the door. And spontaneously, I cried and cried and cried and cried until I received a moment of clarity. I needed help. I was caring too much, and I was turning people away. So I said a prayer, Jesus, I give up. I've been pushing you away because I thought I was strong enough to handle all of this and because I was afraid of where following you would take me. I should be able to handle this, but nothing I'm doing is working, so I give up. I don't want you to be hands-off with me anymore. Just do whatever you're going to do with me. I give up. Now, you would assume that things changed immediately, but they didn't. I kept making the same mistakes. But eventually, my mom's health issues were managed, and my girlfriend and I broke up for good. And now I can see how God used all of these things to break me. One, two, three, maybe a hundred times, she said a thousand times that my insecurity showing out over and over again. The pride was and the fact that I never trusted you, and I know that must have disgusted you. But I had to hurt to learn more than ever. After what I've been through, I know all I really know that I need you more than ever. More than ever. Standing here in the rubble, yeah, yeah. I know that I'm in trouble. I need you more than ever. So why Jesus at this point in my life? It's because I'd never actually followed Jesus as he intended. And there's a lot more that happened during this period, but we're gonna move on. With God's encouragement, I decided to stop attending four churches, and I picked one. I picked the one that made me the most uncomfortable, and that was my ex-girlfriend's church. It had Pentecostal elements, a gospel band, a 40-minute sermon, and a weekly altar call. It met in a tiny converted warehouse that seated 220 people at a time, but it had over 1,500 weekly attendees. The place was packed and loud, completely the opposite of a Catholic mass. And the church had a dumb Protestant name, Abundant Life. I'm Catholic, remember. A few Sundays before Easter in 2006, the children's pastor, a blonde Irish woman who's really weirdly upbeat, she asked for volunteers to help out with the children's ministry. I didn't volunteer but I noted the need. And when the church moved to a bigger facility in Mountain View, I volunteered to help with kindergartners at 8.30 service. On my first day, one of the kids I was watching pulled the fire alarm. 800 people evacuated the building, including me and the 20 kids I didn't even know the names of. I was hooked. The sermons were lively and entertaining, but where I saw the Holy Spirit moving was in these children's ministry rooms off of the main sanctuary. 
I would see adults share their faith with kids, and kids in turn would be teaching the adults. It was extraordinary to watch. So I pretty much stopped going to worship services. I went straight to the children's ministry at 8 a.m. every Sunday, and I stayed there till 2 p.m. And to this day, as much as I appreciate this space with y'all, for me, that's where the game is. I got to know the kids pretty well, and I got to know some of the adults too. Pamela, and Sarah Grace, and Jason, and Kwame, and Sue Ann, and Debbie, Kat, Stace, Rob. And I found out what motivated them to spend so much time with these kids. I also got to know the children's ministry staff, Kendra, Tina, Stacy, Junior. And I got to know the children's pastor's husband, this long-haired Korean dude who wore flip-flops and played the bass and loved teenagers and their probing questions. And I learned they were all nuts. These are my kind of people. And I got to know the children's pastor. Her name was Danielle Parrish. And I learned why she was all so upbeat about all this stuff. A year or two later, Danielle invited me to come with her and her staff to a conference in Chicago. During a layover at an airport, Danielle sat on the floor beside the terminal gate, paper scattered all around her, and a laptop by her side. You remember this? I at, Junior and I asked what she was doing. Well, I'm in seminary, and I have a paper due uh, in a couple of days. This is all my research. I asked, do you mind if I take a look? I said, sure. So I started looking through it. It was documents about the Trinity and all. The, and I'm, I'm thinking, this is really interesting. This is all the stuff I studied back in high school and college. And then Danielle promised to notify me about the seminary's next info session. When I attended that info session, I realized it was that this Protestant seminary was conducting classes in the Catholic seminary that I had planned to attend all those years ago. I had the right location, I just had the wrong school. So going part-time, it took me seven years to complete the degree. And it was a week into the first Greek translation course when during a class break, I saw a classmate pacing in the hallway distressed. She told me, I don't know what to do. You know that passage we just translated? Okay, I'm going to get a little Bible nerdy on you for a second, okay? All right, so this is the passage that should be translated from 1 Corinthians 7.1. And the way it was, had been translated for all of us in the past was, now concerning the things that you wrote about, it's good for a man not to get married. So, okay. Now, in translation here, we have the Greek. So this word here, aptethai, if you know Greek correctly, aptethai, that means kindled. It doesn't mean married, it means kindled. So, translated, now concerning the matters that which you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a man. It's a different meaning. A woman. A woman. We don't have sexual relations with a woman. And, also note, there's no quotes here. There's no quotes in Greek. There are quotes here. The thought was that Paul was responding to something that the Corinthians had written to him before, and he was quoting them. So instead of this being a statement of this is what you should do, he was saying this is what you're saying you should do. Now, we had gone through all of this together. I was sitting there in the class with her hearing all this, and she explained that this is completely different than everything she understood about this. She thought that because things, it was good for a man not to get married, marriage was meant for people that couldn't keep it in their pants. And she carried on with that. She was actually a, a youth minister, and she was sharing this information with them. And it was all based on this. And so after realizing the translation was not quite correct, she said, if the teaching I received from that passage is wrong, what else is wrong? The other more important teachings that I built my life and my faith upon, what if they're wrong too? 
Now, this might sound familiar to some of you. You might be going through this yourself. Uh, This was my first encounter with deconstruction. But over time, I realized that we're not really deconstructing our faith. We're integrating our faith. We're integrating newer perspectives into our existing beliefs. And then our task becomes to discern what God intended for a time and a place and a people and what God intended for all time. So why Jesus during this time? Because following Jesus helped me see that Christianity, absent of a relationship with God, is a rigid husk, far from its founder's intentions. Faith without works is dead. Well, religion without relationship was never alive. Going back to ministry, there have been many people who have been, been, who have been Jesus' gifts to me over 16 years. And to represent all of them, I'm going to highlight one person, Danielle Parrish. Thank God she's not in the room. Do not repeat anything I'm about to say to her, okay? <laughs> all right. Since Danielle offered me a job in children's ministry, she has had my back, advocating for me, pushing me to try different things, difficult things, giving me opportunities to grow. One time during a seminary preaching class, she was in it with me, uh, I delivered a really bad sermon. Yeah, worse than this. And I got appropriately harsh feedback from my classmates. And then Danielle spoke up. Wait, 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 wait. I've been with, in ministry with Mark for years, and what he didn't say to you at a time, and what he'll help you understand what he meant is A and B and C and X and Y and Z. It was like my mom had come to, to fight the bullies for me. <laughs> it was really embarrassing, and it was a reminder of how much she cared for me. Danielle also orchestrated uh, getting my wife Stacy Ishigaki and I together. Uh, and when I proposed to Stacy, Danielle decided to share it with this church during a worship service by posting text messages I had sent to her about Stacy. <laughs> the messages uh, were of, of me gushing about her and pining for her. And now people hear the story and go, no, she didn't. And if you were there, she did. <laughs> Again, embarrassing, but it was the act of a loving big sister. Danielle likes to talk about the ministry of presence. And one of the opportunities that Daniel shared was a moment I wish sometimes she hadn't. Yuji was one of the kids in our ministry, a sweet, playful little boy with a malignant brain tumor. He was a constant at our Sunday services, beloved by all the adult volunteers and welcomed and included by our kids. With each passing month, however, his strength left him, and soon he was in a wheelchair and on a respirator. Finally, his parents decided to remove him from life support, and they asked Danielle to be there present with him in his last moments. Danielle asked me to come with her. I sat on the family's living room floor. I sat on the family's living room floor watching Danielle and Yuji's little sister play with him as he slowly lost energy. And finally, as he died in the arms of his mother. I remember his mom playing that role of comforting parents so well, her speaking to Yuji, smiling, as she caressed him and quietly telling him that mommy was with him and soon that he would be with God. And then once she realized he was gone and she no longer needed to comfort him, she wailed uncontrollably. And then she gathered herself and she thanked Danielle and me for being there with him and told us how grateful she was to God for being Yuji's mother. Upon leaving, Through tears, Danielle spoke of the privilege of being present at such a moment. I thought, could I actually find joy in the midst of loss, like Yuji's mother did? 
It took me a few years to figure out that yes, I could. While I was busy falling in love with a young woman named Stacy, my mother was dying of cancer in Seattle. I took many trips north to spend time with her in hospital rooms and in chemo wards. And I've told this story before, but during one hospital stay, in between my mom's moans and groans and pain, she grew quiet. And she asked me very plainly, Mark, why am I in so much pain? Why is God letting this happen to me? I replied, Mom, I don't know. I can tell you what I'm seeing. There are nurses all over this ward and all over this floor coming to see you. Even when they're not, you're not their patient, they're coming in to check on you when their shift starts and before they go home. They see you as one of them, laughing and smiling, telling you about their patients, taking their breaks with you. Now, I don't know why you have cancer, and I don't know why you're in so much pain, but I can guess why you're here in this room right now. God wants you to care for this, these nurses, and you are. Stacy and I arranged to have our wedding in Seattle on October 15th, hoping to have my mom present. We missed her by six days when she died on the 9th. But our wedding, officiated by Kevin and Danielle, was a celebration of life. Not only Stacy and my new life together, but the still present vitality of my mom, with all the friends and family who were able to come. I realized I could find joy in the midst of pain. And I learned that maybe I could help others find joy in their pain. Why Jesus? At this moment in my life, it was because it was so clear how much I needed him and how present he was in all of it. And during that time, I listened to this song by Michael Gunger endlessly. Out on the farthest edge, there in the silence, you were there. My faith was torn to shreds, my heart in the balance, and you were there.
tell you just one last story. This is my daughter, Isa. This is her full name. She's six months old as of a couple of days ago. Now, there's a meaning and purpose for every name on that screen right there, but the one that most people notice, and the one that's probably gonna drive her nuts when she has to fill out forms when she gets older, is her second middle name, Yitzhakel. It's a Hebrew male name, anglicized into the familiar name Isaac. If you know of the story of Isaac's birth in the book of Genesis, you'll know that he was a child of promise, born to the unlikeliest of couples, a 91-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. Now, her mom, Stacy, is not old, but at 46, I'm no spring chicken. But that's not the reason why we gave her the name Yitzhakel. It's because it translates as God laughs. God doesn't laugh at us, but at what we believe is impossible for God to do. And God laughs with us as we find joy and happiness in who God is and what God does. Take God seriously, but take your faith lightly with humility and with joy. It took me years to learn this, and despite all of my Catholic bravado, I had to learn to follow Jesus wherever he takes me, including to a beautiful group of people that meets in a Palo Alto synagogue on Sunday afternoons. Like Paul said after sharing his bona fides, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There's a Yiddish phrase, mantrakt und Gott Man plans and God laughs. This phrase points to our assumption that what we plan is better than what God has in store for us. But this isn't a God who is standoffish, scoffing at our myopia or misinterpretations of him. This is a God who encourages us to laugh with him, to laugh at ourselves, to find joy as we live with him. And I hope that Esau will remember that from time to time when she sees her weird, hard-to-spell middle name. So now, why Jesus for me? Because the person of Jesus allows me to take an unchanging, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God very seriously. And because following Jesus encourages me to take my own changing, limited, flawed faith in God lightly. Especially when why Jesus becomes, why Jesus? Those are moments when the good news are, are, is not being proclaimed to the poor when the brokenhearted are not supported, when the liberty is not being given to captives, when sight is kept from the blind, when those who are mourned are not comforted, and when those who are oppressed remain oppressed, oppressed, at least for now. Taking my faith lightly gives God room to work in unexpected ways for me. And that's the goal for me. To trust God is at work in ways I can't fathom. To find the joy that God finds in me, in us, and in our world as broken as we are and as beloved as we are to see Jesus for who he is and joining him in what he is doing. And that includes something very simple, loving us. Religion is an attempt to understand something outside of us and to make it something within us that brings us together and gives us all meaning. Every Sunday, millions upon millions of people, each with their own Why Jesus stories, they all come together to share them and to remember the one who brings us together. Please, right now, take a moment to recall your Why Jesus story. Why do you follow Jesus?
Now, come and join me in this sacrament that we're celebrating in the center of all of us, not up here, not in front, in the center amongst all of us, this holy mystery of our shared faith. For in the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.